So hello and welcome back to the Small Animal Clinical Podcast brought to you from the Royal Veterinary College in London. My name is Shailen Jassani. And to remind you then, today is part two of our two-part series on ophthalmology. So in the remainder of the podcast, I think mostly we want to just focus on the treatment. Mm-hmm. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to let you just talk us through the treatment of the different severities, if you like. And then we talked before we started, actually, there's a couple of hot topics that we need to discuss. Sure. But I'll try not to. I'm not very good at it, but I'll try not to interrupt your flow. No, that's fine. If you fine. could just walk us through the different approach to what the different approaches depending on what we see sure that would be great so i think we need to remember that what we said initially the epithelium is a barrier for bacteria for example so if you have a non-ulcerative keratitis an antibiotic might not be the best drug to choose um so um because the epithelium is intact. Exactly. So it's protecting. Exactly. So there's no. It's less likely that the bacteria are gonna go in there and damage. Mm-hmm. And the disease cornea that you are seeing, actually, it's a not ulcerative disease. So it could be immune mediated. There could be other causes. Okay. Having said that, there are abscesses into the cornea, but these are very infrequent. Um, so it's not completely wrong to give an antibiotic, but it's not the first thing we would probably choose in a non-ulcerative keratitis. Now, on ulcerative keratitis, for very superficial ulcers, we just need a broad spectrum. We don't need to hit that eye with very strong, powerful antibiotics, which actually means using um, the antibiotics uh, options that we have in our um, pharmacy, if you like. And the purpose of those antibiotics are essentially preventative. Exactly. So, like on our skin, we have a a stuffs and streps in the surface of our skin so that's the same for the eye so we have normal flora in the surface of our eyes if we have epithelium missing that flora can say oh great let's invade this trauma and cause some damage so by you us um, prescribing an antibiotic we kind of stop that and we control that flora from invading the stroma so um so it's it sounds like the the um, non-ulcerative ones Antibiotics are not topical antibiotics, are not indicated. Mm-hmm. If someone said to you, "Yeah, but you never know whether it's going to ulcerate," I thought I'd give some anyway, just in case. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean, a similar argument to it's already ulcerated as a sort of preventative thing. Yeah, um, I mean, it's not incorrect. It's just if we are dealing with um, a panos or a chronic uh, superficial keratitis, a lymphoblastomatic disease. Acid fusidic is not going to treat that patient, right? I mean, it's not wrong to give it, but you need to give something else to treat the etiology of why that patient came to you. And so I guess it's it's contextual. So if it's the first time you're seeing a patient and you don't have ulceration, maybe you say, well, let me see you back. Mm-hmm. And if ulceration is starting, then sure, maybe. Absolutely. Consider, but, but just as a kind of instinct. Okay. And then if it's ulcerative, then we're saying, mm-hmm. yeah, we would recommend Absolutely. All ulcers, all ulcerative keratitis need to be covered by, an inti- by, a, by a topical antibiotic. Okay. That's for sure. And for superficial, I'll go for a very broad spectrum, like fusidic acid or a chloramphenicol, for example. And when we get a more, um, when we get stromal involvement and or a melting ulcer or a much more severe stromal condition, um, the way uh, we normally work it out is um, by doing a corneal cytology, which um, our vets might not want to do that, but is the way I decide which antibiotic I'm going to use. Now, I never knew that. See, it's great. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. So, what, so, 
Yeah, I mean, we talk often on these podcasts and in general about trying to encourage people to use their, their microscopes in practice. Mm. And so, I, yeah, I mean, I, I don't know whether people are going to start doing corneal cytology. I could not work without the <laughs> microscope, I yeah. tell you. So, yeah, absolutely. Um, so well, how, do you get, how do you get some corneal cells to... So we, we first make sure that it's not a fragile eye. That's mm. um, the, the first thing. Um, and that the, the, the patient is going to be cooperative. And we put local anesthetic. Um, and then we, we use... Um, what we call cytobrushes, like actually they are like ma- mascara eyelashes. Many female vets will know what I mean, uh, and um, they actually they are white, and that's what we use. But you could use actually like the the blunt end of a scalpel blade, for example, okay. cool. and that you put on the slide, and then you stain, and then you'll be able to see if you have, for example, if you have rods then you need to be quite concerned because rods are gram-negatives, most likely. They could be pseudomonas, so you could you are dealing with a very severe corneal ulcer. Whether if you have um, coke or cocaine, um, then the situation is still um, you know, complicated, but you might not need to use your... Um, as a stronger antibiotics as um, with a pseudomonas case, for example. And um, <clears throat> so let's say you saw, let's say you didn't do cytology, mm-hmm. but you felt that you wanted to escalate the antibiotic therapy. Um, what, what are your options? So you said already about using fusidic acid or chlorophenicol as your kind of first line agent. Mm-hmm. What, what comes next? So... Um, Next, I would probably use, I think chloramphenicol um, is a very good option because it has a very, very good corneal penetration. Okay. Um, so I think that's, a, and it's quite gentle for the, for the cornea. Um, we use sometimes uh, ciprofloxacin as well, or ofloxacin, which are a bit stronger. Um, I have been trained as not using gentamicin very much, which I see many vets use. Mm-hmm. Um, I... I think it is a very strong antibiotic and it can have its place, but certainly not for a superficial ulcer, which we sometimes see. Okay, cool. Um, we'll come back and talk a bit more about antibiotic therapy. But um, So what else are we going to use in corneal ulceration cases? So when it's, um, when it's superficial, I think... Um, with this broad spectrum and some pain relief, for example, what we would expect is after seven days that ulcer should be healed. If it's not, there's something we're missing. Okay. And when you say pain relief, are we talking topical or systemic? Um, normally or? we would go systemic. And I think it depends a bit on the patient. Some patients are much more uncomfortable than others. Um, but we normally, I would say, an NSAID if systemically the patient can tolerate that, that would be a good option. Okay. And um, <clears throat> whilst I remember when we were talking about using antibiotics... Mm-hmm. Are there any times when you actually give systemic antibiotics or not? Um, not really. Um, we don't know exactly how good the penetration is on the surface, on the tear film of the yeah. patient when we give oral antibiotics. So I think it's not our first-line treatment. If we could not medicate that patient for, let's say, it's an aggressive patient, okay. I think it's... It as exactly. Um, so <clears throat> analgesia, antibiotics, mm-hmm. uh, what about lubrication? Is it... If there is a dry, if there is a dry eye case, then certainly lubrication is gonna help, um, and especially if if we are dealing with a patient that has zero tear production, we need to remember that the tears are there to nourish the cornea. Mm. So the cornea is going to struggle to heal if it doesn't get nourishment. So then we need to think, how can we give nourishment to this cornea? And a way that we can give that is by giving serum. 
and that's the famous serum that we use for melting ulcers, for example, which is um, just taking blood from the patient, spinning it down, and using that serum topically. Um, so if you, because you mentioned it a couple of times, and I wanted to ask you anyway about melting ulcers. So mm -hmm. I guess let's say what, what is a melting ulcer? Mm -hmm. Because then I want to ask you about the, the, the serum therapy as well. Sure. So what's a melting ulcer? So a melting ulcer is uh, a bit how I said it before, when there's these enzymes that start destroying the cornea more than actually building normal tissue, and, and the nasty enzymes win the, the nice cells that try to. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Cool. So, and that's and literally what happens is that, that that collagen starts literally melting and you can see the stroma moving as the dog blinks, for example, Jeez. or the cat blinks. And it looks like more jelly and the cornea is a healthy cornea. is really tough. So that's not a normal behavior from a cornea. Um, Sounds terrible. Um, and then so what the, the serum, um, <clears throat> if you could, I, I, well, I guess the question is, it's quite an it's quite an intensive therapy, right? Mm -hmm, so absolutely. You bleed the patient. Um, do you have? Does it has to be that same patient? Could you use a serum from another patient? You could use it as long as that patient is healthy. It's healthy, and you've got consent and all that. Exactly. Um, so you bleed the patient. You spin spin it down. Spin the whole blood down. Mm -hmm. Separate off the plasma. Plasma becomes serum, and then you've got this serum that you store in the fridge. Yep. And we apply it hourly to hourly um so it depends a bit on how um the severity of the melting ulcer so i would go from hourly to <clears throat> at least every three to four hours when you have a melting ulcer i think it depends a bit on how bad it is really okay so the decision to use topical serum therapy sort of if you see an eye and you think yeah that's pretty bad mm -hmm. and you basically it's a sort of an, an aggressive not an aggressive therapy but it's a level of concern that you absolutely think now is there any reason why people in practice couldn't do that or shouldn't do that? Or? No, I think it's, it's something that is available as long as the dog can be bled easily and, or you have a, a donor um, that can you can bleed from with authorization of the owner. And um, the thing to remember is that the serum... Um, you should put them in small vials, if you like, because the serum loses its um, properties every hour that stays out of the fridge, for right. example. Yeah. So what we do is we freeze them uh, in a, a small aliquot, if you like, and mm -hmm. every day we will take one aliquot out of the fridge and we will use that one. And how much do you apply? Is it One drop is enough. One drop. Okay, yeah. cool. So, so people could consider doing that, but I guess we want to be sure that they're not going overboard in cases they don't need it, right? It's, it's These and that you shouldn't use it if the dog is, has perforated or the patient has perforated, yeah. So I think it certainly, it will not harm, but if it's perforated, then uh, there's more risks of infection and so on. So not treating the patient as it should be. Okay, so um, what? let's then move on to scenarios when you start to consider some kind of surgical mm -hmm. intervention and sure. I, I guess I mean that both from the point of view of non-perforated situations sure. but also obviously when we talk about perforation as well so normally for perforated we, we would say all perforated patients that come into our clinic and um, the owners are willing to we will offer surgery because it's um, it's not an option to leave that eye non um, you know with with a leaking eye if you like so it needs to be sealed ASAP and it's an, it's an emergency really and so if you're in practice mm -hmm. and you think you have a perforated cornea yeah um 
what should you be doing? Should you be, let's assume that you, you don't do the surgery yourself. Mm-hmm. Should you be trying to get that referred, that patient referred? Absolutely. I think um, the vet could provide with pain relief because normally they are fairly painful. Mm. Um, so pain relief would be the first thing that the vet should consider for that patient. And then what we normally recommend is zero topical medication. Uh, so when an eye is leaking, there might be a fibrin clot on the surface of the eye. And if a drop is applied or the eye is flushed, that uh, fibrin clot could uh, be dislodged and then more active leaking could happen. So that's interesting. So, you know, um, so people might think erroneously <laughs> that this is a perforation. I've got to be really aggressive with my therapies. And actually you're saying, don't do that. No, so, no topical therapy. Yeah, so once once a globe is perforated, I think the way to go is surgically. Before that, yeah. absolutely, you can save an eye by just using intensive medication. But once it reaches to the state either of a decimetocil or that is has perforated, then I think surgical management is the way to go for sure. Um, and actually, we didn't. Not, I don't think we defined a decimetocil specifically. Okay. Um, what what Let's just, yeah, so we've mentioned it a couple of times, but sure. what do we mean by a desmetacil? So when we've said that the cornea is 500 microns, yeah. um, the stroma um, in the cemetocil, the stroma is missing. Most of, all of the stroma is missing. So what we remain is with the decemet membrane and the endothelium, which we said is like seven microns. Yeah. And, and that leads to a very transparent cornea that you can see inside the eye perfectly well, but it's actually extremely fra- fragile. Yeah. And if that patient sneezes or bumps its head it into the door, it perforate. might perforate. Okay, awesome. And then uh, in non-perforated cases, when do we think about surgical interventions? In non-perforated yeah. ones. Yeah. Um, I think... It all, it, it's all matter of progression. So if you have an ulcer that was really bad yesterday, but you've, you've instigated intensive medication and has gone better in 24 hours, then that's great. I think that patient can, might be able to be managed medically. Okay. Uh, but if in 24 hours of intensive management that I still doesn't look very good, then that's telling us that the medical management is not going in the right direction. And that's how we deal sometimes with our uh, severe corneal cases. We admit them with intensive, uh, with medically manage them quite intensively, and if we're not happy with the progression, then they'll go into theater. But it's the difficulty is getting how do you get to the point that you can say, I'm happy with the progression, and that can be very tricky. Um, and so I guess people need to re-examine their, their cases, but uh, I guess how soon depends on what they found at the first exactly. presentation, really. So there's, there is some, some nuance there about come back tomorrow or come back in two days or whatever yep. it might be. Um, okay, cool. I think... Um, well, let's just say in terms of other surgical interventions, you say about, you know, like, we go to theatre. Mm-hmm. What sort of things do you do in theatre? Okay. <laughs> Again, you know, relatively, sure. relatively simply. But, but also, because people in practice, some people do procedures as well, don't sure. they? Sure, so absolutely. What kinds of things? So, then? in theatre, um, so with the use of the surgical microscope and our um, um, instruments and our sutures, uh, if there is a laceration, for example, we will suture it directly. Um, if there is a uh, large corneal defect, there are several options that we can um, use. So, we can do a corneolimbal conjunctival transposition, which is basically creating a, a flap of normal cornea and the conjunctiva and move it forward to okay. the defect. And then we suture that flap onto the new area. And that will cover the defect that we are having. Okay. 
The good thing of that procedure is that it's bringing transparent cornea to the area of the defect, as opposed to a conjunctival graft, which brings pink tissue, which is non-transparent into a center, a central area. So um, it depends on where the ulcer is located and um, um, the appearance of the eye, really generally, which um, surgical treatment we are going to go for. And also we are very lucky that we have the corneal bank here that we can use corneal donor to, um, so we can use uh, a piece of a cornea of a donor to suture to the defect of our patients. Let me um, let me come back to that in a second. Let's just go back. So, what was it called? It's called cornea limbal transposition. Cornea limbal conjunctival transposition. So we call it CLCT because it's faster. <laughs> okay, no, that's fine. And the decision between that procedure and a conjunctival graft. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're saying so. Could both be done in any situation, or is it one um, better than the other? Or? There will be situations that I will aim for one or the other, um, and it depends on the on the state of the rest of the cornea. Um, I think it's a very it's very individually t- tailored for okay. each patient. Fine, um, and then let's talk about the corneal bank because. Um, you know, obviously, it's was, it was not that long ago when it was when we set it up. You mm-hmm. set it up here. Yeah. Yeah, we had sure. nothing to do with it. Um, <laughs> having had experience with doing it somewhere else, mm-hmm. right? So, can you just, I guess, just summarize, you know, briefly for people what what that's about, but also where did those corneas come from and sure. sort of ethical things? And Absolutely. Just like that, so, we have the ethical concern of the RBC Ethical Committee um, to um, offer a donation system to patients, uh, to owners of patients that um, come to the RBC and they um, sadly um, um, die. Um, if we get the owner consent, and only if, um, then we will proceed to harvest the corneas of these patients in a sterile manner. So it's done as an enucleation would be done in theater, exactly the same. And those eyes are stored during 24 hours in the fridge um, uh, in case there's a... Um, a perforated globe that comes in that would benefit from that fresh uh, cornea. And after that, they will go into the freezer. Right. Um, and then they will use more as a scaffold to uh, fill in a defect of a cornea. So those are basically the um, our aims to the cornea of having a corneal bank is to be able to provide with many different options. So from a conjunctival graft to a CLCT to a corneal a graft or a corneal transplant. So we can offer many, many different type of corneal cool. surgery depending on what we think is best for the patient. So you enucleate the deceased pet. Yeah. What do you do with that enucleated entire eye? Sure. Take the cornea out of it, or yeah. um, so it depends. There's, there's, you have no clue about sure. this. Sure, <laughs> <laughs> no problem. Um, there's um, there's two different ways of storing. The reason why. Uh, I, there's a space issue, and therefore um, storing only the cornea occupies less space. And we've, we we will do that at some point, but I'm very keen on having also the sclera, um, because there are certain tumors like limbal melanomas, mm. um, which can benefit us uh, having sclera also frozen from uh, from our corneal bank. So that's why we have both. Fascinating. And um, in terms of... Uh who can get the cornea from whom? You know, mm-hmm. uh, are we talking 
dog versus cat? Are we talking breeds? Is there is there issues in terms of rejection? Mm-hmm. What about that kind of stuff? So at the moment, um, we we try only to do same species. Uh, so we do dogs, dogs, horses, horses, um, cats. We don't do because of the herpes um, disease at the moment and other infectious diseases in cats. But so we're focusing our efforts in dogs at the moment and uh, expanding to equine soon. Um, and um, at the moment, we prefer to stay within species. But there are some studies that say using different species tend to give a poorer prognosis, but it's not very clear. And is that the only issue then? I mean, it's not like with blood types that we have to worry about. No, it's it would just... be just rejection, but it's it's a slightly typical rejection than what we would uh, think of, a, for example, a liver transplant, for example. Interesting. All right. Um, I think we're kind of getting there, really. There, there was... There's a couple of things that we want to talk about. One was, we've talked quite a lot, I think, about antibacterial therapy, so mm-hmm. that's fine. But I know that, that we talked before we started, and I, you know, what, what I was trying to get out of you when we were talking about the different severities, if you like, and when you decide to change antibiotic therapy and mm-hmm. when is it indicated and so on, was to try and avoid this scenario where, almost out of desperation, you know, you're seeing a patient, their cornea is not healing, and you just keep changing or you add two or three topical antibiotic therapies. And mm-hmm. I'm, I'm getting the sense that probably that's more of a desperation measure than one that's based on rational sure. clinical thinking or yeah. clinical stuff. So, so I guess is that a situation that you recognize? Where do we mm-hmm. see a lot of cases that have had a lot of um, topical antibiotic therapy? And if we do, you know, what, 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 you, what have you got to say to mm-hmm. people about the I love situation? To, I love that you bring this up because, I mean, it's not a super common um, thing that we see from our referred population, but um, what we see often, and it's especially in what we were calling the sketch ulcers or the boxer ulcers, which what we see is a history of a dog that has received three, four different types of antibiotics um, because the vet sees that that ulcer is not healing, is not mm. healing, and, and they think that changing the antibiotic might help. But actually, if you were actually dealing with a nasty bug, that I, after a week, would maybe not be even there so um, that also would have progressed much more faster so you need to um the, the way to think is that, okay, let's go backwards. Why is this ulcer not healing? It's not progressing, um, so therefore it's unlikely that I'm dealing with a nasty bacteria there, but it's not healing either. So what are my other differentials for this kind of ulcers? And then think that there might be something rubbing or something in there that is causing the ulcer not to heal. That's really interesting. So, so what we're basically saying is that aside from the, the situations where there's no ulceration, mm-hmm then, yeah, topical antibiotic therapy recommended. Yes. If it's superficial, then broad spectrum, we talked about fusidic acid, chloramphenicol, maybe at that point is cool. Mm-hmm. If you think it's a more serious situation or it progresses to a more serious situation, then you might want to escalate to a stronger, in inverted commas, yeah. antibiotic. Absolutely. And there we were talking about ciprofloxacin, for example. Chloramphenicol may still be appropriate. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, but really... So that escalation in that situation where you change from one to the other is because you think the situation is worsening, right? But really beyond that, just trying different antibiotic therapies doesn't sound to me like it makes a huge amount of sense. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think that's very fair. I'm sure I'm guilty of having done that in in the days when I used to do this stuff. So that's that's fine. Okay, good. Well, it's good that that we've clarified that because we... 
We obviously see that situation with multiple antibiotic therapies mm. in lots of different circumstances, Absolutely. right? Not just this. And I think in every situation, sometimes there's a little different story going on there as to why it's happening. Yes. Um, but this one is certainly one that's, um, that's very important. Now, the other thing I wanted to talk about, which we didn't mention in the th- treatment at the moment, mm-hmm. um, was topical... We talked about maybe using topical non-steroidals for analgesia. Mm-hmm. But what about topical steroids? Mm-hmm. Now, where do they fit into high management and where do they fit into the ulceration story? Yeah. So, uh, And actually, before I let you answer, sure. tell me some evidence. <laughs> Give me some evidence, damn it. <laughs> so, so it's true. I mean, we, as ophthalmologists, we normally are against using steroids in an ulcerated cornea. And that's because steroids can trigger a melting ulcer. That's mainly the main reason for that. They, um, it's important to remember that both steroids and non-steroidals topically will delay the corneal healing. But um, some ophthalmologists will use non-steroidals, and I have used them in, in ulcers if needed, um, and I know I'm delaying that ulcer healing, but I might be more concerned about something else, and that's why I'm using them. Okay. But certainly, I will not be using a topical steroid. Um, and I think um, with in any in any ulcerative in any ulcerative process. process, absolutely. And if I wants to ask you, provide me a randomized, prospective randomized, blinded mm-hmm. control trial sure. that shows a difference in progression or outcome. Is mm-hmm. there such a thing or not? Um, there's very, very old... So the issue with ocular pharmacology is that many studies are quite elderly. Um, and um, we don't have... And I'm talking about the 50s, 60s, 70s. So, uh, yes, uh, their evidence might have changed now with time and with different um, newer non-steroidals. Um, and um, I think it's... With... Um, in human ophthalmology, for example, they will use steroids in ulcers, mm-hmm. um, but they will monitor them extremely carefully. And the, the patient will say, I'm starting to see a blur, which is going to be very obvious to that person, but not yeah. for our patients. So I think to be on the safest side, of, uh, on the safest side, I would say never use steroids on an ulcer. And do you think that it's so embedded as a position mm-hmm. that actually it would almost be very difficult to do a trial because would you get ethical approval to give a bunch of dogs? So if you, if you were going to try and randomise sure. patients, not experimental things, yeah. um, if you were going to try and randomise patients, do you think anybody would actually approve that randomization to, to topical steroids or no topical steroids? Um, or they'd be like, I, yeah, based I don't on know. what we've always thought, we sure. really shouldn't do that. Um, I think if we cannot dig in proper evidence, I think probably it would be, there would be a, a space or, you know, a, a potential to it. I think what we need to go is a bit backwards and say, why do I want to use steroids on that ulcer? Because mm-hmm. maybe the reason is that there is inflammation in the eye, there's a uveitis, but actually you can treat that systemically, which will reach fairly good intraocular levels of the drug, and you need, you avoid putting an extra drug an extra drop on that so, patient. So then, are we saying there's a difference between topical steroid therapy and systemic steroid Absolutely. therapy? Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. So before I was talking always topically, Topical, systemically, yeah. um, if a dog needs steroids or is on steroids, it's not gonna, it might affect a bit the corneal healing. That hasn't been shown, but I wouldn't be that concerned. Um, 
So do topical steroids have any role in eyes? Absolutely. Yes. So <laughs> we use it a lot for intraocular inflammation. For yeah. example, after cataract surgery, we use them a lot. And if since we're talking about the cornea and we were talking about uh, uh, the chronic superficial keratitis or the lymphoplasmacytic infiltration of the cornea, steroids have an amazing role there. Steroids is going to be the drug to choose if you have that sort of condition. So it's really about the, is, it, is there ulceration or not? Absolutely. And if you've got a patient that, it's having topical steroid therapy and it's doing great things and then they develop an ulcerative mm. process and yeah. you're in a pickle right absolutely <laughs> and that has happened so yeah. it is that's so why it's important that yeah. that you monitor them mm-hmm. um and that's when the non-steroidals might come into place or cyclosporin topically might come into place because remember that cycle cyclosporins are Optimum, it is okay to be used in ulcerative cases. So that's when you might want to use uh, um, a drug that will control your lymphocytes that are invading the cornea and is not a steroid, so it's a bit safer to use. Fantastic. Um, let me just see. I think we have covered pretty much everything. Um, we talked about the corneal bank, which because one of the things I was going to ask you about was what's new, but I guess that's enough new information for today. I mean, <laughs> sure. um, you know, that's, that's certainly something that's pretty cool. We talked about mm-hmm. melting ulcers. I wanted to mention those. So that, that's all good, really. I think that um, before we, before I wrap it up, we, you had mentioned before we started talking and mm-hmm. it's completely off tangent, but I was like, yeah, we need to bring that up. <laughs> um, you, you wanted to mention something about um, cataracts in diabetic patients mm-hmm. and the listeners are like, what the hell is going on about it's fine. We're off on a tangent again, but that's cool. Sure. So what, what did you want to, to mention about diabetic I, cataracts? Sure. I mean, it's um, mainly in dogs uh, and it's uh, cataracts in diabetic or diabetic cataracts can happen fairly sudden in diabetic patients. And the reason why they develop and they, they, they develop so quickly is because um, there's um, within the lens in the eye, this water goes into the lens by an osmotic pressure and that changes the um, um, the structure of the lens and let's not be transparent anymore. Um, and it's not only the, fa- the lack of transparency which creates the cataract, but the concern is that that water inflates that lens so much that it mm. can rupture. Well. So when we are dealing with a diabetic or when vets are dealing with a diabetic, it's always, um, there's a lot of information for them to take home for mm. the owners, bless them. But um, I think it's important to drop the fact that they you, might go blind. Do you completely. feel like the eye gets a bit ignored then? <laughs> well, I can understand it's a lot to go through, no? Yeah. Showing how you inject them, that, you know, going through your dog is going to need injections for the rest of their lives. There's a lot of information for uh, the owners to go ho- home. So, dropping another information of your dog is going to go blind at some point. I think it's a lot to take, but I think it's important for vets to know that um, generally we won't wait more than two to three weeks to do surgery on those patients. So it's not like an emergency. uh, That needs to be very clear, but it's not something that we would leave... For the patient to be stable, for example, that's not the, the way to From go. From a diabetic point of view. Exactly. And um, <clears throat> I guess what, what I wanted to, one comment I wanted to make was, although you're right that there's a lot of stuff to say, mm. I think in terms of actual impactful patient welfare, all that kind of stuff, sure. Like, I mean, I'm sure the dog doesn't care so much about his daily blood glucose fluctuations as yes. long as he's not feeling really ill, exactly. right? You know I mean? like it, Absolutely. He's probably not feeling great, but if he suddenly goes blind, I think yep. he or she might... Not, not be very happy about that. Absolutely. Um, 
I guess the other thing is that do is there any do we know if there's any correlation between the stability of diabetic control mm -hmm. and the likelihood of developing a cataract, or is that non-related? It's been tried. I, there's been some comments in some articles, and I don't think it's that clear that there is a correlation. It used to be thought of okay. that, okay. but I don't think it's that clear anymore. Okay, cool. Um, and basically, if, if those cases cannot have surgical intervention, then they're really just stuck with their cataracts. Then they're going to need long-term topical some sort of anti-inflammatory topical because remember we'll be blind. yes yeah. but it's unlikely most diabetics will will benefit from cataract surgery unless of course there's a an economic uh, well restraint. so i guess my next question is with the economics mm -hmm. um i guess like with everything we would hope that well i don't know if it's has it become more accessible in the uk to your knowledge and if it has then does, does it become more affordable and i don't mean that we charge a lot of money for it but i just mean sure you know i mean well my mom had cataracts. Mm -hmm. This is personal information. Uh, anyway, um, has had cataract surgery done. Not because not she's diabetic, but for sure. a separate reason. But mm -hmm. you know, that, I won't tell you how much that cost us. We did it privately. And yeah. again, that's another conversation for sure. another time. But, but much more than we charge, put it that way. Absolutely. Um, but nonetheless, so, you know, like, uh, because I guess I've seen and encountered um, in various parts of my life diabetic dogs often belonging to older people who cannot afford surgery. I'm not, I'm not saying there's a correlation between age and not yeah, affording surgery. Yeah. But, and I was really sad because mm. I'm like, you've got your 13-year-old Westie or whatever, you're yes. like a lovely old lady, dog can't see, they're trying to cope with that. And I'm like, man, you just sure. you can get your sight back if you can have the surgery. Absolutely. You know? It's difficult, right? I, it I is really hard. Time. It's really because hard. Because it's such a, it can be such an impactful intervention. Absolutely. Right? You go from having, being blind. By having vision, then yeah, blind to exactly. vision again. So. Absolutely. And they, they recover, the recover period is really like when they wake up, they are already watching our nurses come up, pass by. So they really can see straight away. And it's such such a big impact for them. And for us, it's really, um, you know, it's great to see them, how they walk in after surgery, they don't bump into things anymore. And, and that, that's great. That's a great feeling. And because of the surgical procedure, we won't go into that in detail, but mm -hmm. there's no chance of recurrence then, right, because of what's been no, done. exactly. And uh, in terms of the accessibility, like, I mean, are there more people doing it now than, say, 10 years ago, or is it still um, I think restricted? Or? So I've been in the UK for seven years, and there's, there's several places. I think there's more, um, I think the northern you go, the less places you might find in the UK. Um, but there's several areas, so I, I, I think most people will have an ophthalmologist within two hours' drive, I would say. Yeah. Um, I could be wrong, but there's several, yeah, there's a few of us spread across across the across yeah, the country one of the issues um, okay look let's stop um, okay because i think you know there's so many things that uh, absolutely that we can talk about that we just carry on forever um do you think that we talked about the ulceration in enough detail there's nothing that we've comes to mind that we've forgotten that's really important i'm sure there's some stuff that no, that we didn't mention but you know I like i said I it's, it's not supposed to be every single thing sure. about it it's just a really good overview um, i think we've that's in a few important parts, and I hope um, um, the listeners do feel that they've taken on board some things. Yeah. No, I think it's great. I, I've definitely learned a lot, which is awesome. <laughs> um, and, you know, once you've recovered from this and given you a bit of time, I'll come knocking again and Absolutely. We'll, we'll talk about other things. Because I think there's a lot of... Um, I've been dying to do some ophthalmology stuff. It's just a challenge because we don't have many ophthalmologists sure. for it in general. Absolutely. So I'm like, you know, it's not quite going to... It's difficult. Um, yeah, I'd okay, be happy so, to. Huh? Be a, yeah, I'd be happy right? to come back. You survived? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> All right, fantastic. Um, 
And to the listeners, as always, then do feel free to get in touch and provide your feedback in the usual ways. Um, and also let me know if there's any clinical topics that you would really like a podcast on. So you can email me directly at estrasani at rbc.ac.uk. On the RBC's Facebook page, there's a photo album that contains the links to all the podcasts. And if you're a Twitterer, then you can tweet at Royal Vet College using the hashtag SAClinPod. And just a reminder again that if you can spare a little bit of time to get onto iTunes or Stitcher Radio and give us a rate or a review, that would be awesome and I'd really appreciate it. And until next time then, do take care of yourselves. Bye-bye.